So welcome to a very special episode of The Sort of Young Person's Guide to Prog Rock. I am your host, Ian Prize, and today we are going to talk about a key element of progressive rock, which was the incorporation of new technologies into the music. And this was accomplished with an array of technologies, probably too numerous to get into. But I'm here with Ed Thomas to attempt to do just that. So today we're going to take you through the keyboards and the guitar technologies and soundscapes you might encounter on this magical prog journey we're going on. So uh, welcome, Ed. Good day. How's it going, Ian? It is going quite well. So we are going to start at the very beginning with some keyboard sounds. So we've touched on this because we'll have touched on the two Beatles albums that will lead us into the world of prog, and they made heavy use of the Mellotron. So the Mellotron is that very haunting either flute or string sound that you hear, say, at the beginning of Strawberry Fields Forever. Do you want to take me through what the Mellotron is and how it works? Okay, so the Mellotron is that thing that's better than an orchestra because (laughs) it's cheaper than hiring musicians. (laughs) So for a songwriter or someone working in a studio, it's an obvious choice as soon as the technology's in place. Yeah, you've got, all the, you've got all the access to these really interesting sounds, but where do they come from? We've got this uh, device that's basically playing back recorded material. So it is your first sampling device, would yep. you say? Um, and actually, taking it all the way back, just a real brief explanation. What is sampling? What is sampling is playing back a pre-recorded snippet of audio. A sample, one might say. <laughs> yes, and in, and in this case, yeah, we've got um, sounds recorded onto tape. And as the, the user of the device plays the key, the keyboard will play that small section of tape. I believe it's one at a time. You can't play more than one at a time. For when did this come out? 1963. Yeah. It's quite an interesting idea, isn't it? So you think from a mechanical perspective, how many cogs and wheels are going on there is quite yeah. It's quite an amazing thing in itself, isn't it? So I think they really did just bring in session musicians, so like a, a celloist or a flautist, and they said, play A, play A sharp, play B, and they just recorded the session musicians playing one note at a time and just filled out essentially an, an octave, two octaves. So yeah, when you press the button, you get an infinite looping of just this one sound. So that's what creates this really haunting, kind of haunting soundscape. I guess the thing that makes this different from, say, an orchestra is that you have one basically unchanging sound. There's no start of a violin string. There's no violin string coming off. It's just an endless little, you know, one second loop, mm. which just gives you that that really weird as I say, kind of haunting sound. Yeah, it's kind of alien, isn't it? Um, and and from, from what I gather, it's actually quite a hard instrument to play. I remember reading something about Rick Wakeman having access to one in some music shop and as, as, a, as quite a young kid playing on one. And um, that's kind of how he, he got picked up and, and used as a musician. It was like, oh, check out this kid who can actually play that thing. I mean, I, I get the sense that this and then the next one we'll be talking about were a, a real pain in the ass to bring anywhere and do anything mm. with. I think these were physical machines. Yeah, I can imagine that like, the first ones 
you know, imagine if you've got a studio at the time, oh, they've that studio's got one of them, and it'll be like a reason to get, you know, to want to actually go into that studio. Even though they're not that big, I keep imagining like the hilarious 1950s computers. <laughs> so you could sample a recorded sound. The next real innovation would be to invent sound wholesale, which brings us to 1964 when Robert Moog, or Moog, whatever you want to say, created the first commercially available synthesizer. So synthesizers just create a sound out of pure electricity. So as I'm sure we all remember from physics class, when you say pluck a guitar string, it creates vibrations at a certain frequency, which creates the notes that we know. So these discrete frequencies of vibration create the discrete 12 notes in the Western scale. So the Moog synthesizer will create these frequencies out of electricity, converting them to sound. The innovation Moog adds to this is basically screwing up that sound. (laughs) Which is where we get the huge panoply of of synthesized sounds we get today. So you could really change the waves so that you're only getting really annoying parts of the frequency. You're cutting off the tops of the waves, getting a real saw buzz sound. Uh, you could uh, you could add reverb. You could add distortion. Basically, you could take a synthesized sound and and really mess it up. And then the next innovation he would then make for these bands as the this keyboard became part of the soundscape of Prague or of rock in general, he made the Mini Moog, which was a compact version that you could ostensibly take on tour. Yeah. What's interesting about these devices is that is is how much sounds you can get with I say a few controls. You see some of these things and they're just littered with knobs and dials and stuff. <laughs> but in reality, when you start playing with something like that, once you get your hand on the frequency and the cue then things get dynamically interesting very quickly. So you can you can dive in and not really know what you're doing and still make some really interesting sounds. So yeah, Days of Future Past, perfect example. All of a sudden you've got this band now access to kind of write their orchestra parts. Yeah. And then you might throw in some actual musicians as well. So what would normally be, a, you know, something that you'd you'd figure out in the studio is something you can incorporate into the writing section which would would normally require some some an orchestra with a conductor and to be able to speak that language that not necessarily all these musicians could now we're entering the world where it's these 20 year old kids they're in the studio now and that they can just plink around on a little keyboard and make cool orchestral style sounds Hmm. without having to have you know george martin conducting uh, the london symphonic in abbey road yeah, exactly, and that, and that's the thing, isn't it? It's giving more power to the to the musicians to actually create using a language that they don't yep. speak. And and yes, you can still bring in that stuff later on, but yeah, you've you've kind of already guided the orchestra to where to where they're going. And, and I was going to say, and I think maybe that's the point of all of this is that you're taking these technologies. And so you have the likes of Rick Wakeman or Keith Emerson just playing around with these synthesizers now and letting their minds and their fingers run wild. Mm. And and you think about how much all this technology changes in that, well, just in that one decade. You come from people basically having kind of acoustic instruments mic'd up to all of a sudden everything's electrified and you've, you yeah. you can do so much more and your actual performing in front of people isn't as limited. 
And I guess that's why the whole of the 60s is so interesting. But by the end of it, I feel like like all the ideas have already happened, but we're just improving on them. So the technology is getting a little bit better. The amps are getting a bit louder. The PA systems are getting louder. But also they're getting louder with more precision, less distortion, less problems basically yeah and that's just and that's just making the songwriters or the recording artists life a thousand times easier so we'll take it now on to the the main focus of the conversation here and that's the the icon of rock music the thing that really people think of most when they think of rock and that is of course the electric guitar Mm. yeah personally i think it comes from a place of uh, a lot of happy accidents so, okay. So, at some point, you know, at the beginning of the sixties, the the guitar was something that was due to die out. You know, it was it wasn't loud enough. You, people played saxophone. That was that was the thing. That was the solo instrument. Yeah, that was yeah. that was the exciting, brassy kind of solo instrument, wasn't it? I, I would also say I'm thinking now of like Phil Spector and that wall of sound sound that is the sound of the early 60s, is orchestral pop, where it's like we want huge, lush, complicated backing tracks. Yeah, and that's and it's like it's something really hard to do outside of a big, well-managed studio, isn't it? I guess it's it's not so much the guitar, it's the amplifier okay. that changes changes everything, I think. People talk about like the first time you hear like, you know, electric guitar is it's like it's just a clean guitar sound. It's nothing Yep. It's nothing exciting as such. It's you know, you think of the early Beatles stuff, it's this jangly Yep. That particular sound comes from an, an amplifier that does have an element of breakup to it. But really that was that wasn't what people were aiming for. You know, the best amps were the, the fenders, you know, a super clean amp, you know, no matter what you plug into it, always crystal clean. But when you turn them right up, they start to lose the stability and you start to hear some crunch. But the, the first time you hear this isn't from people putting effects into them. It is from pushing the amp that little bit further. Um, a really good example from Blues World is um, Elmore James, who played famous for slide guitar playing. He was um, like a radio repairman in a previous life. So he'd like he'd tamper with Zamp a little bit, and it would run that little bit hotter. And he, and some of his performances, you can hear like an early representation of what people would later call like overdrive distortion, basically. Yeah, like like that very low level distortion. That's you know what, what you'd call like soft clipping. Um, I guess take me all the way back to the beginning. So way back in the day. People just <laughs> played acoustic guitars, fine. Mm. And, and yeah, I think I, if memory serves, it was like a Portuguese instrument circa, I don't know, the 1600s is the first six-string guitar that we know and love. Mm. We zoom forward to probably the American South, where the first of the Delta Bluesmen will be singing and playing acoustic guitars. That's kind of where the guitar enters the American popular imagination. Yeah, and that's the thing, you know, uh, you know, the first thing that pops into my head when you, when you talk about acoustic instruments, you think of these sort of bluegrass bands where, you know, when the guitarist is a solo, he just walks up to the microphone and, and he just gets a bit closer. But obviously you can... You can... And you're talking like Elvis Sun Studios. Yeah. yeah. Like when he takes a takes a hot, hot solo, he walks up to the microphone and... Yeah, yeah. But you're still going to have problems with other instruments getting in the way there and stuff so yeah okay so they walk up to the mic and they're, they're playing to the mic 
but you're getting a bunch of other instruments. Yeah. Then in the 1930s... Um, Leo Fender, he's been building pickups for, you know, sort of semi-hollow guitars for like jazz players and stuff like that. The very simple thing. And he, he, he gets this kind of slab of wood and he builds what we now look at as the Telecaster. And it's okay. literally just, it's like a sample guitar, you know, to show off the pickups. And yeah, apparently lots of like like country musicians were like hiring the thing, were like asking to borrow the thing for recordings. Okay. Yep. So, and it just became a popular sound. So when I think of an electric guitar, I was think of... The Telecaster, the, the proto. It, you know, that's that's the first solid body electric guitar that we still use to this day. So... Initially, you're talking about this, so the acoustic guitar would just be mic'd, so a microphone that just picks up the room sound. What is a pickup, and what does it add to this? Yeah, so obviously if you're in a studio and you're recording, then that's fine. But for a performing musician, you need to be able to make sound and amplify that without amplifying everyone else as well. So the pickup is is basically six magnets pointing up, facing the strings. It's got a long piece of coil some copper coil both ends are on a fixed position it starts and finishes at a point where it can make a circuit okay and what happens is as the strings are hit the string moves up and down and it excites the electrons within the magnet generates a very weak signal which then the amplifier can pick up and amplify amplify Yep. <laughs> amplify. yeah there is a problem with that though so pickups also make incredibly good antennas so they also pick up a lot of noise from external things you know when you think of a a pickup on like a you know like a stratocaster or a a telecaster it's one single pickup it's like a thin bar Um, when you look at something like a, a les paul you can see like it's a thicker one what they do there basically is they have two pickups with the poles facing one way and then the poles facing another way and basically what that does is using phase cancellation gets rid of all that sort of background it it cancels the background noise out all of the other stuff it's only picking up the string ostensibly exactly and it's so it's referred to as a humbucker because it bucks the hum okay bucks the hum nice i think what's interesting about it is that it cancels interference using phase cancellation which is something I will explain more because that will come up um, when we talk about other things. But the, um, the string signals from both calls actually add up instead of being cancelled. So you get a more powerful output. So when you get guitars that have got this humbucker pickup in there, if you play that into an amp that was kind of designed for a single coil pickup, that's instead of it being clean, you're actually pushing the front end of the amp a little harder and things start to naturally break up. And the breakup is is what we would call distortion. Yeah, so that, I think that's where things start to get interesting is when you've got amplifiers that are less are less efficient, basically. So um, the American amplifiers are super efficient, really clean sounding. What happened was there was an issue with basically selling American amplifiers in the UK. So Jim Marshall in the UK is selling Fender amps He's importing Fender Basements, which are one of these amps that, yeah, when you turn it up and you start playing into it with a humbucking pickup, it does start to get on the edge of cooking, you know. When Jim Marshall 
was having problems getting these into the country, but still had a high demand for them. He takes this design and basically copies it. So the first Marshall amplifier is actually just a copy of a, a Fender one, but the parts are slightly different. So it's got different tubes in there and it doesn't have an element of the amplifier that is used to kind of keep keep it stable and it starts to break up a little quicker. And even then, you know, it's still quite a clean amp, but these first Marshall amps, they're the classic ones for that crunchy sound. And it's they kind of still are. And this and this is what I find interesting about this this period in history is that I feel like they kind of got it all right back then. I mean, people still use Strat. People still use Marshall amps. Yeah. People will still use overdrive and phaser pedals. and Yeah. So I can give a quick demo of that. So basically two different guitars plugged into the same amp with the same settings. Okay, so first of all, I've got an amp that's set to just at the point where it's about to start breaking up. Because this is a valve amplifier, we should be able to hear the difference in the pickups because the output of the pickups will be enough to push the amp if there's a difference. So starting off with a Fender Stratocaster that has 1965 pure vintage style pickups, which have a 5.9K output. So that sounds like this. So you should you should actually hear a little bit of breakup just from just from playing a little harder. So it's quite mild, but this is the sort of amplifier you would have had sort of late sixties, early seventies. I'm I'm using a modern amp, but it's it has that sort of voicing. So that's the single coil pickups. Exactly the same amplifier, I haven't touched it. This is um, a Gibson Les Paul that's got Gibson Burstbucker humbucker pickups on it. And this has a 7.8k output as opposed to the 5.9k that the Stratocaster had on its single coil pickups. So you should hear that the amp is pushed that little bit harder. So without anything else added, this is the sound of the, um, the humbucker pickups. Yeah, quite a lot more breakup there. It's all happening completely naturally. There's nothing, there's nothing else um, in the chain there. There's no guitar pedals. There's no boost. There's nothing. It's just the sound of the the pickups pushing the front of the amp. Now, because we're at that kind of breakup point, we can just hit the strings lighter. 
um, and you get a really clean sound. I haven't turned the volume down or anything, just... And then when I dig in... It really allows you to be quite expressive. Okay, so that was basically the same amp, same settings, everything, just the amp, just the guitars were different. And as you could hear, just that little bit extra output from the pickup has pushed the front end of the amp, and that's why it sounds slightly more saturated. You could describe it as like more compressed. So I like to think of an amplifier as a giant compressor. So compression. Yeah. Go on, you describe compression. <laughs> So I'm going to ask everyone now to imagine sound waves. So if you think about just a, a bar and you've got your sound waves and they're going in a you know high wave, low wave, high wave, low wave, the amplitude of the waves is how loud the sound is. And compression just brings the softer parts up closer to the higher parts. Now, there's a lot of complicated details with what the threshold for quote-unquote softness is, so quietness. And there's a threshold for how fast the compression comes on. How fast do you bring the quiet to the loud? But the essence of compression is that you should, at full compression, have almost no distinction between how soft the softest bits are and loud the loudest bits are. And that's, that's complete compression. When we say something like more dynamic, it means you have a larger distance between the quietest moments in a song and the loudest moments in a song. So that, that's compression versus dynamicness. Yeah, so and in recording that's very useful because it makes it makes your signal easier to work with. And so so for example if you're recording guitars, you tend not to do much to them afterwards because the amplifier has done everything. You know, you just put a microphone in front of an amplifier and it, and it brings it up to a nice even sound basically. But yeah, so I think the next element here is obviously in the blues world these artists are coming out of the UK with these guitar and amp configurations that are making more of these sustaining sounds. They're kind of becoming the superstars in the music world. And and people are kind of like, what they're kind of starting to want more of that crunch, more of that overdrive sound, and people are finding ways to augment that. Artificially. Yeah, so, so for example, with the, the British amps, when you turn them up, to the point where they start to do this saturation they start to sound quite dark and one of the the fixes for that was a thing called a treble booster now when this beautiful little thing was put in front of this this amplifier because of the way the transistor and the the, the capacitors that feed into that because of the way they're set basically what happens is the signal is sustained in a way that kind of blooms it's it's a hard thing to describe but it's that kind of king of all guitar solo sound you know when you think of someone like brian may you know when you hear those soaring lead tones that's a treble booster and it's like the first guitar pedal so what you're describing here is treble the higher end of of the frequency so up here like that yeah and that's the thing that cuts through a mix that's the thing that cuts through that's the solo sound we hear is that the thing is though i think I think like to describe it as a treble booster is um is really kind of confusing because it is it isn't really a treble booster. It it does push the higher frequency. It's more like the high mids 
which is the vocal bit of a guitar. And it's the th- and it like you say, it does punch through the mix. But because the amp is so dark, it's not like a shrill sound. If you hear it in isolation, then you may you may not enjoy it as much as if you know if you were just playing in your bedroom because it it might sound a little shrill. But in a in the context of a band, it will just cut through. And again, you hear it a lot in country music in the early days. Same reason the amps got a bit dark. They push it with this this treble booster. But like I say, it's kind of like the first guitar effect. And when you hear it, you can hear where the sort of heavy rock sounds come in later. Yep. It's almost like, again, they had this sound right at the early doors, and we just took what we've heard and tried to recreate it and find a better, more efficient way of doing that. One of the problems with, with the, the early transistors is that they're very temperature sensitive. They're very temperamental. Like they're, they're quite sensitive to any sort of atmospheric stuff, any like um, other equipment might generate more sound. Basically... It's the same sort of transistor you have in a radio, so sometimes we'll actually pick up a radio signal. Okay, yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, there's all sorts of problems with the early equipment, but, again, people still look for this stuff today. I think because this is the first sound, so, you know, we've got generations of guitarists who wanted to be Hendrix or Clapton or or Page, so I think we we will forever be looking back... Exactly. Um, ...to this era of, of... guitar sounds yeah for example this this one i'm going to play for you now is called the beano boost um and it's referencing eric clapton on john mayle's blues breakers album i don't believe this is actually what he's using but everyone kind of has always associated him with this this pedal um but the combination of a gibson les paul one of these treble boosters and uh, a martial amp that's a sort of combo martial amp so as a combo i mean like a amp and speaker in one enclosure yeah gives you this sound all right let's hear it so here's the sound of the treble booster so to demo this i'm using a gibson les paul into a 40 watt martial combo that's got a, a vintage voicing to it um set just to the point just before it starts to break up but it's exactly the same as in the previous demo um, between the single coils and the humbuckers. So I'm not going to change the, the amplifier at all now. I'm just adding the treble booster. And I'm in this case, I'm using the Analog Man Beano Boost. And this is what that sounds like. <laughs> If we just back up from the volume there, we get some... So just by backing up from the volume there, we get some nice sort of overdriven tones that are less extreme. We back up a little bit more. So the, the sound of this treble booster with the, the volume in different positions gives us so much options. So you've got lots of levels of crunch there.
that's got to be one of my favourite guitar pedals. I think it's just that the guitar and the amp just gives you so much uh, variation in you know your levels of drive. I think I think Steve Hackett actually uses that that same that same treble boost. That's the Analog Man Bino boost. Excellent. So yeah, you can really hear that that kind of bluesy soloy bloom. So in the prog world, we have um, Steve Hackett, who um, when he when he joined Genesis, the Nursery Crimes album, where you first hear him play. Yep. Steve Hackett, I don't think was using one back in the early days. He definitely has used them in his career, but the Marshall Superfuzz or the Tone Bender is a bit like the the treble booster and the fuzz face being played at the same time. And it is essentially kind of that. It's got three transistors in it instead of two or instead of one. And it sounds a bit like this. So this is the Tone Bender. So this is the one that has three germanium transistors in it. volumes roll back a little bit. So again very expressive you can you can get a lot by just sort of riding the volume control on that one. the germanium equipped fuzz pedals and, and boosters tend to have this, this thing in, in common where you can find that sweet spot with your villain control. And just as a, a quick demo, I'm going to go tone bender, then fuzz face, and then the treble booster. <laughs> Um, but yeah, backtrack a little bit. So yeah, that that setup we've got there. So that Bino boost of the Les Paul is something that Steve Hackett still uses now on stage. Um, he actually uses that same one, that Bino boost by Analog Man, because he's famous for a really soaring kind of high. I don't want to say high pitched, and I don't want to <laughs> say shrill, but he's got a really kind of soaring sound, and it has that blooming effect that you talk about. Yeah, where. As you go higher up on the the guitar, like to higher pitched notes, he still maintains that 
Kind yeah. Of. His his current setup, he's actually got a device that is a sustainer. And okay. I'm not sure exactly how that works, but it's it's something quite custom to his current setup. But back then, I don't know for sure, but I think he probably had one of these. Um, and now I know Peter Gabriel was a huge The Who fan. And for that reason, I think that's how he ended up using a high watt um, amp stack because that's something Pete Townsend used. So you've got like a high watt amp and this Les Paul. Now there, you see the high watt a lot in the sort of 70s rockers. I think the high watt stacks tend to be quite clean because at this point, the PA systems have got better. You know, like the audience can actually hear the artist in, in these bigger venues, but you've still got the guitars being played through amps on stage no one's really micing those up yet so the so yeah the amps are huge like the 100 200 watt but the high watt stacks were were famous for staying kind of quite clean even at those high volumes so people mm. are kind of wanting to put stuff into them to make them break up so you're collecting a guitar sound straight from the pickup basically now you can mess it up yeah <laughs> Which is great fun, and that, that's that's where we're at now. So we're at the stage where you can mess it up, and as you say, you you actually have designed a cleaner amp. So that brings us now to overdrive, I guess. Yeah, in the sixties, I think yeah, we're putting things in front of the amps to, to clean them up to make them. You know, the treble booster will brighten up a darker amp, shall we say? It doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily make it trebly, but it will it will bring it up to a, a more useful cut through the mix level. Yeah. Yep. But that has generated this sound that we just heard, and it is is enticed the ears, and and then people are finding new versions of that same circuit that do a little bit more. Now this is where we come into the world of fuzz. So the first the first fuzz pedals it was kind of like an effect that sounded more like you, you know you think of that um, satisfaction riff. You know that was a a little bit that was put in there to to kind of emulate a horn section. It was never supposed to be on the record. It was just this kind of awful sounding fuzz pedal. It was the the Maestro fuzz tone was the first one. Yeah, I don't think that's a very good example of a fuzz pedal. So you don't really hear a lot of use of it. The circuits that, that was used for that treble booster, I think it evolved very quickly, but using the same sort of transistors, we hear this, this sort of fuzz tone. Now, the obvious example is Jimi Hendrix with the... The fuzz face. Okay, yeah. Now, if you've got a guitar with single coil pickups, if you've got something that can really, really mess up your sound going into the amp, one of those big Marshall stacks turned right up, it's just going to sound like it's falling apart and the world is ending. <laughs> yep, okay, yeah. And if you th- if you think back to when, you know, Jimi Hendrix, because he, he's kind of like, he's using this as soon as this thing is, is invented, basically. He's using it. Of course, this is probably the most exciting thing you've ever heard in your life. Not only is it one of the best guitarists ever, but it's the craziest sound you've ever heard. I mean, even now, it's it's thrilling. Like, as in, like, even now, it's so, so heavy. Mm. Yeah, it's fabulous. But, you know, certain guitars and certain guitar pedals work... Well together. Yeah, and and so the fuzz face, I feel like, is, is something that works really well with a, a Stratocaster in prog rock. I think David Gilmore is the the ultimate exponent of using that particular type of fuzz pedal. He's famous nowadays for using something called a big muff, but when he was first picking up equipment, he he was actually still using Sid stuff. So Sid would have got the fuzz face. Sid would have got his his um, 
Echo Rec, which is a famous delay unit. And he's just basically starting to use that equipment. And he, yes, he'll add to it and change it as time goes on, but he's using a very similar kind of setup to, to Hendrix. He's got his wow pedal, a fuzz face, and the Binson Echo Rec delay unit into a high watt amp again. So the same as what Steve Hackett's using. We could give you a little demo of a fuzz face in effect through a Stratocaster, because I think that's just the ultimate usage of that. Well, well have, have a little taste. Yeah, here's a little demo of that. I'm using the same Fender Stratocaster with the 65 Pure Vintage pickups going into fuzz face and then the same amp. I haven't changed any of the settings. So here's what the fuzz face sounds like. So that was some tasty licks there, Ed. Um, so yeah, that was the fuzz face. Now that's an early style fuzz face using the same transistors as the the treble booster. There's just two of them. That's the only difference. So that circuit is pretty, you know very similar circuit. You've just got one transistor feeding into the next. The first transistor overloading the second transistor, and that's what gives you the fuzzed out tone, basically. Fuzzy, yeah. fuzzy tone. <laughs> so actually, Ed, we're gonna we're gonna take one step back. A, is fuzz different from overdrive? Yes. So okay. fuzz is like the most square of waves. So talk to me about a wave. Okay, so your waveform is basically... A wave up and a wave down. <laughs> it literally looks like yeah. a wave. As you clip the tops and bottoms of your waveform, the, the more those tops and bottoms of the waveforms are being clipped, the harsher the sound is and the more distorted it sounds when you hear a modern distorted sound it's a very square looking waveform a fuzz is also extremely square looking very similar to a modern distortion but there's more of like an organicness to it because because of the, the type of circuit that it is and the type of components that are used have have like a more natural flavor to them so um so the treble booster and the fuzz face they're using a germanium transistor which is a technology that is before silicon ever existed. And we quickly move away from that because it's not very useful, basically. It's it's very temperature sensitive and it's, it has the problem about problem with picking up interference from elsewhere. Now, there's one very special thing about these very simple circuits. Because the signal going into them is kind of mismatched, what happens is it overloads your pickups so the signal goes back into your guitar, basically. Your guitar becomes one with the pedal. Now, modern equipment doesn't do this. It, it purposely doesn't do this because you can't, you can't then put it anywhere in the signal chain. Uh, a treble booster or a fuzz face kind of needs to be the first thing the guitar sees because it interacts with the, with the pickups in a very interesting way. So, so you, can, you can have the fuzz pedal maxed out have this incredibly fuzzed out sound, but you roll the volume down on the guitar and rather than the volume of the signal going down, it just cleans up. And and that's why people still use these today because nothing really does it the same way. Insert, really good example of volume going up and down. 
so that's with the first face set at its maximum setting what's great about this is it works really well with the volume control on on the on the single coil pickups so if i just roll the volume back it should just clean up really nicely now if i take the volume down to like seven really cleaned up there put it down to five it's completely clean <laughs> the difference between that and that's pretty dramatic incredibly expressive fuzz pedal yeah a lot more than just fuzz there it's fuzz it's very clean and kind of everything in between really You think back to like early Pink Floyd, I think Sid and David both used these sort of germanium equipped fuzz faces. Um, and as you can hear, it depends how you play it, you can get quite a lot of different sounds from, from that one effect. Beautiful. Cool. So to me, that sound where we're on the halfway point, you know, when people talk about overdrive sounds with modern equipment, yeah. that's the sound. You heard it there, you know, if you've got a fuzz pedal. You don't need an overdrive pedal. You probably don't need anything to give you the clean sound either. If you just leave that on all the time, use the volume yeah. control. You've got all your... To clean up your sound. Yeah, you've yeah. got like all those layers of grit. And it's, yeah, that's my favourite thing in the whole wide world is the, uh, the fuzz face. So we talked about how people started using these devices to augment their sound and how useful that is in a performance environment. But a lot of um, what became normal for guitarists, for example, to have on their feet come from trying to emulate what we can do in the studio. A lot of the sort of modulation of sound that we hear in modern music comes from trying to emulate those those things that we did in the studio with time-based equipment. So the thing you're recording with, the tape. So I guess take me back to the beginning of modulation. So modulation is the subtle change in either time or pitch. And it, it probably has its origins in EMI, Abbey Road Studios, with ADT. So what is ADT and what problem were they trying to solve with ADT? That's a good one. And who was the problem? <laughs> okay, so so yeah, EMI, there's a guy called Ken Townsend who is a balance engineer. Now... Abbey Roads, like their their engineers were basically, you know, maths and physics background people. They, they were like actual engineers. Scientists. In, yeah, they were like yeah. white coats and this, that, and the other. Yeah. And yeah, Ken Townsend um, 
talks about having spent three or four hours trying to do the double tracking um, with the Beatles. So you've got this engineer who's brilliant mind worrying away this problem in his head, like, what can we do? This is frustrating. Basically, he's got two types of tape machine he works with, day in, day out. Basically, when you record onto tape, you've got a record head and then a, a playback head. And there's a distance between the two. And on one tape machine, the distance is like one and a half inches. And on the other tape machine, it's about three inches. So he has this amazing idea that I could just feed the signal from the record head into the next tape machine. So you then have two output signals. Slightly off. Slightly off. Um, And what he also does, he put like a... He put something into the... between the two tape machines that would that would alternate the speed again so he could make it yep. even closer. And what happens when you get to about 100 milliseconds or less, you start to hear these sort of... Almost like a second voice. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's thicker. It's still just two voices, one slightly delayed. It's just one voice doubled, doubled. so that they're slightly delayed. And at that time, they were... You know, to have two voices would take up two tracks, but they could do that in mono... And you, you often think about these sort of phasey sounds as a stereo effect, but in, in this case, they were actually trying to use up less tape. So it, it, yep. it, it served two purposes. You've got two voices recorded. It's the same guy, but, you know, you've got... If he was to just record that again, that's two, two bits of tape they've used up. So they could just record it back onto one piece of tape. But if he was to manually adjust the speed... Rather than just having two voices that are exactly the same with a slight delay, you start getting these sort of phasing sounds and as as kind of interesting modulation. Yeah, and it, and and it's it's not like the pitches change; it's like the frequencies change as the delay starts to go through that null point where it would cancel itself out. Phase cancellation is the same. Is in in physics, it's the same thing that was being used to remove the hum in a pickup. So if you imagine a waveform from where it starts, goes up, back down, to the point where it would start the next wave is considered like 360 degrees. So if you were to overlap those two waveforms where the peak of one is at the the trough of another, it would completely cancel out the, the signal. So if you can make it wobble around that point, you get some really dramatic sounds, and that, that's what we call flanging. Now, originally, people used to do that just by putting their thumb on the, the flange of the, the tape recorder, and it would kind of smear and... But that's like quite a dramatic sound. But then you've got phasing, which is like a more subtle sound. Loads of things have come out of this artificial double-tracking thing that was invented by Ken back in... 66? Yeah, yeah, for a revolver. So when you hear that on those records then, anything else is just trying to recreate that that thing that was done with just two tape machines. It's incredible, isn't yeah. it? You know. And it's I mean it's just such a good sound and I th- and I think once you've cracked the concept that you can slightly mess up a second take and create that thickness, mm-hmm. the thickness of the sound, the world is your oyster. And that's the thing and and as soon as you've heard that then you're like, oh, I want to hear it on this, and I want to hear it on the other. I think there's two main devices that you hear in the studio in the 60s that become what people try to emulate later on. Um, so the first is this ADT device and the tape flanging, and you hear a, f- a flanging effect. And yep. the second is is this sort of Leslie speaker, which is what you normally plug into a, 
an organ and it's just a spinning speaker basically now when um people are trying to emulate that sound they invented a thing that's completely different you know that that's your phaser the the first yep. the first one of those was not till a lot later on you know it's it's that you actually see people being able to use this stuff outside of the studio or you know that don't have to like a leslie's a huge device you know people do still want to take those on tour with them but you don't really play on one at home when you record it when you're like i mean because it's a spinning speaker it's a ma- basically. yeah and it's massive it's in like yeah. a big mahogany box and yeah yeah it's a monstrous thing so we've got a flanger and a phaser now those are sort of terms that we use to describe these sounds like i don't think either of them replicate those two devices but i think that's where people first heard these sounds and where the demand for that sort of type of effect comes from so the phaser is quite a funny one because you know when you see Jimi hendrix playing you know star spangles banners on the woodstock performance he's playing with a univibe there and it's this sort of undulating whooshing sound yeah. that's going on it's that woo 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 sound that, yeah. that's, that was basically trying to emulate a Leslie and doing a terrible job of it it sounds nothing like a Leslie it sounds well it sounds like a univibe and that's your first phaser pedal pedal that's your first one that you've got that you can just plug a guitar into but it's a beautiful sound it's, it's the best mistake ever you know it's one of it's like one of my favourite effects so just before we hear you on guitar, just so we can get a sound mm. of what the ADT was supposed to be, this is me, and then, and then this, this is me, me with, with me, me. And, and this, this is, is me with me closer, closer and, and this, this is me with me closer, closer, and then this is me phased. So you can see how weird this sounds. It's great though, isn't it? And you can, it's very odd. <laughs> and then you can imagine where Tomorrow Never Knows, that sound that John Lennon was so fond of, comes from that really woozy and yet extremely full sound. Mm. Now, I find quite interesting about that is Tomorrow Never Knows, is that ADT or is that John Lennon plugged into a Leslie speaker? I mean, I will never knows. (laughs) 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 Yeah. So, yeah, I've 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 seen both written down, so I'm I'm not sure. I'm not sure, but... But both are happy accidents that were then replicated yes. in these pedals. Either way, the Beatles plugged everything into the Leslie. Yeah. George George was obsessed with plugging the guitar into the Leslie. John Lennon certainly recorded his vocals into the Leslie during the Revolver album sessions. But that is definitely where you first hear the the automatic double tracking used. Mm. Shall we? Shall we hear these pedals now? Yeah. So. I'll start with, I've got actually a, a Leslie emulating pedal. So this is what a Leslie sounds like if you plug a guitar into it. I don't have an actual rotating speaker here. So I'm using the Keeley Rotosonic to emulate the sound of the rotating Leslie speaker. Here's the clean sound of the guitar. Here's the sound of the, the Leslie. Okay, out of Japan, 1969, 
the Univibe circuit is festivised in an attempt to sort of emulate that sound. Uh, the best example of, of this is probably Jimi Hendrix on Machine Gun. I'm not going to play that, but here's a little sample of the Univibe. It's got that kind of chewy throb to it. Now, what's great about this as well is the you can adjust the the speed with the with a foot pedal. Essentially, that, that pedal is a phaser. The phasing is done using a lamp and some photosensitive resistors. Okay, now moving on to phaser. So this is the electroharmonic small stone. A really good example of a kind of 70s sounding phaser pedal. It's quite nice. It's it's um it's subtle and it's even. But yeah, so the the phaser doesn't come in till like the early seventies. I think I think David Gilmore's the best example of a guy who uses lots of guitar pedals. Who's Prog King of guitar, I think, yep. is David Gilmore. Fair enough. Yep. He doesn't start using a phaser until nineteen seventy four and he's using an MXR phase ninety. I think the first phaser pedals he used like early seventies, so maybe seventy one I think is um when Electroharmonics comes out with their electric mixtress, which I think is probably the best name for a phaser pedal ever. That's brilliant. <laughs> But yeah, David Gilmore it was uh, a Univibe user, up, you know, up until he got the Phase Ninety, which I think, you know, they're all do- all these these modulation pedals essentially doing a similar thing. It's just how they go about doing it. You have two signals, one stays the same, the other one modulates. It's either modulating because it's got a, a short time delay, and then some form of comb filtering is added to that, or it's um, delay in the the phase so those two waveforms just moving out of phase with each other <laughs> yeah okay so that sort of tape flanging sound in order to emulate that that's where you start bringing in comb filtering which is basically where you emphasize certain frequencies the comb filter sort of passes through those at time intervals and what's happening is that's being added to that delayed signal to cause a modulation and for that reason that the the flanger is is quite a dramatic sound yeah anything to do with time-based effects tends to be the most dramatic i think 
Here's an example of the flanger, and as you can see, it doesn't sound anything like a phaser, but we often use those sort of words interchangeably when describing these kind of whooshing sounds. But yeah, here's, here's the flanger. It's a typical flanger sounding effect. Now, a flanger in a guitar pedal format is, is not the same as the tape flanging we were talking about. This is achieved with the, the comb filtering added to the delayed signal. So it's, it's got a different character to the, the tape format, but yeah, here's, here's, here's the flanger sound. You know, so the flanger is a more dramatic sound, but so it's quite a similar sort of thing to chorusing. Now, we can, if we fiddle with the settings, we could probably get something that sounds a bit like a chorus pedal. Excellent. I guess just real quick before we leave the, the phasers, yeah, just a moment of appreciation for just how, how well they feed into the psychedelic sound. Mm. As in, I think just that you could mess up a guitar sound so much really does a lot to push weird music forward or push music to get weirder. Yeah, like I, in my head too, I always associated, you know, the psychedelic sound of the 60s with things like phases. It's like they didn't exist yet. Really, yeah. you know, that's that's the first example of a phaser. Like, it's actually, you know, if you pick one up, it says on it chorus vibrato. You've got two modes, so that the chorus is the two signals, one modulating, and the other one straight through, and those two together give you this phasing effect. It's like a lopsided wobble, yeah. so you have this kind of throb that's very. You know, it's, it's just unique. It's its own thing. And now we're going to come to probably the most famous of the pedals in rock music, made famous by by Jimi Hendrix at the very, very beginning. And it is the wah pedal. It's just such a characteristic sound. It, it has the wah, wah, wah sound. And that is achieved by, I'm going to call it EQ bending. Would that be what you would call it? So I, I guess as the example, here's my voice only cutting the lowest frequencies. Here I am at just the mid frequencies, and here I am at just the high frequencies. So you can hear that at a very narrow band with each of these frequencies, you're only getting a, a small fraction of the whole spectrum of the sound my voice is actually producing. So you clip that little tiny band and then amplify that little tiny band of frequency and then you wash it up and down basically using your feet on the pedal. <laughs> and, that, and that's what's wonderful about it, is that because it's at your feet and you're playing with your hands and you're moving that with your feet, it's kind yeah. of like an instrument in itself. You know, we talk about Hendrix. He, he, he used his with a, a fuzz face. Now, those two pedals famously do not like each other. You often get like 
um, squeals as it as it as as the the impedance of the two are mismatched terribly. Um, you know, it's like you've got a fight in your hand when you when you match those two things together. Now, a good example of that, David Gilmore. He had an issue where he would get this oscillating sound where he'd these t- these two devices together would just make this howl basically. <laughs> but when that fed into his delay unit, his echo rec, he turned that into a musical thing, and that's where that kind of seagull sound comes from. So rather than just God, these two don't work together. It seemed to just spark his creative energy. You know, that, I, th- I think that's why he's kind of, to me, he's you know, God King of guitar pedals. He's sorry, he's Prog King of guitar pedals in my world because <laughs> he works yeah. so, so beautifully. You know, he just does a lot with very few devices. But but yeah, that use of those terribly mismatched guitar pedals is is quite amazing. I'd love to emulate it, but I just can't do it because the first pedal I've got here is just too well made that it won't us. It won't do that. It's one I made myself, in yeah. fact. <laughs> so, do we want to have a, a taste of the wah pedal? Yes, we do. And here's an example of the the wah pedal played in conjunction with the fuzz face and just on its own. And here's the wire paired up with the fuzz face. was a, a spicy spicy wah and, and again just that really characteristic wah 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 sound but going all the way back to clean guitars yeah so when you think about the beatles i think they were always the ones pushing the boundary first well the the biggest band that were pushing the boundaries so they were they were the band everyone was listening to now when you listen to the, the early stuff even then they were wanting to do more so yeah, even when they were recording don't bother me George was asking if he could if he could stick some more compression on that guitar to get some more kind of organ tones out of it. And on that same session, John Lennon's being told, no, you can't use the maestro fuzz tone. You know, George Martin's scolding him for, for even thinking about it. Yeah, you yeah. Know? And then you fast forward a couple of years and they go in the studio to, to work on Revolver. Now, EMI's got really strict policies about you know, the microphone has to be 18 inches from the source of the drums and blah, blah, blah. And they went in there for the first time going, right, okay, look at look all these rules that we've got here in this studio. The same studio where the engineers are in the lab coats. Let's yeah. systematically go through this rule book and start questioning this stuff. People are plugging into also, you know, that, that people plugging into the Leslie and... The band's been given new instruments to play with. So before that, it's all these 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 jangly box amps that kind of clean. But, you know, you can get a great overdrive tone with a with a Vox amp, but the big ones that were solid state at this time, they were putting distortion into this into the heads. So 
for the Revolver album, you've got the, the Vox 7120. It's actually got a distortion unit into it, built into it. John Lennon's using um, the Rush Pep Box, which is like a great little two-transistor fuzz box um, that's still being made today. And it's actually the daughter of the guy who originally invented the circuit is still making them herself one at a time, which is beautiful. Um, and yeah, there's there's an array of like fuzz pedals on hand, and the, you're hearing like these crunchy tones for the first time from the Beatles. You know, George Harrison starts using the the Gibson SG, so he's got a guitar with the the high output humbucking pickups. He's using wah. He's you know, it, for any Beatles fans who are into guitar, that's probably your favorite album. And I feel like the the sort of tones that you're hearing on that album become what everyone's trying to get. And we probably touched on this on the Revolver episode in general, but like I think that's the sound, like Revolver became the sound of studio yeah. rock or a rock band in the studio. And I think obviously it was the Beatles, biggest band ever, and then such a smash hit. And as you say, you know, things like moving the the mics closer to the drums, these types of new way of doing things really become the sound of, of studio music. Yeah. And, you know, for, from a guitarist perspective, those same guitars and amps... Maybe not the Vox, but like, you know, George is still is using a, a Fender Bassman, which is, you know, we spoke about earlier. That's what the, the first Marshalls were based on. So it's 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 got that kind of easy to break up, that kind of crunch. And you can hear the crunch in Revolver. Yeah, I guess this is probably a good place to take this now is uh, spiritually what happens to the guitar after the, the 60s. So what does the guitar begin to represent? So I feel like. Yeah, all that distortion and fuzz becomes synonymous with sort of psychedelic movement and, and maybe even psychedelic blues and um, funk and things like that later on. But the sort of the prog guitarists seem to get kind of a bit cleaner, with exception of maybe David Gilmour, who's yep. you know a fuzz enthusiast. But you know, it's like he's using distortion to get clean. <laughs> you know, he he's pushing. Yeah the amp with the distortion to make the amp bloom into this compressed state. Also, he's he's the least busy of all of the guitarists we will talk about on this podcast. He plays one note yeah, per yeah. minute. I think when we're talking Steve Howe, Steve Hackett, Robert, Robert Fripp. Robert Fripp's a really good example of that. You know, if someone like Robert Fripp was to use heavy distortion, it wouldn't work. I mean, he almost plays, he plays a lot of acoustic guitar, actually. Yeah. That album, it's that's what I think of is the, the acoustic guitar and the Mellotron. I don't really think about the electric guitar. For him specifically, for Robert Fripp, this is he later for the the Wetton years, nineteen seventy two, seventy three, seventy four, when they become essentially more mm. of a power trio. That's when he he really amps back up. And again to kind of fill that fill that space with, with sound, but it doesn't work if you've got a lot of complicated things going on or doesn't work as well. But I, I guess I'm talking now spiritually, like the the 70s will become the era of the rock god or the guitar hero. I don't know if this is true for Prague, actually. I'll think about that one. I think Prague always shares like its limelight with yeah. keyboards. And it's just generally playing in larger venues and, and utilizing what you can to get the songs across with at high volume. And as you're coming out of the 60s and into the 70s, People are building this technology that you can now use on the stage and you can now inform your songwriting rather than take the songs you've already written and bring them into the studio. 
you can write them straight knowing them that you'll be able to play them like this later. Yeah. And it's so it's like I feel like technology is not just aiding the musician, it's kind of guiding the music forward. So we've done all the experimentation yep. in the late 60s in the psychedelic movement, but now we understand how what we can do, how far we can push the boundaries with with live music and fuzz and all this sort of stuff. Well, now we know where that can take us in a in a songwriting world. Now we've got an array of portable pedals and stuff that we can modulate our sound with on stage. You know, obviously the, the, the early 70s, a lot of the stuff is still quite big and hard to drag around with you, but they're playing these huge venues and they've got, you know, road crews helping them bring them on stage and stuff. At least they're not bringing a studio with them. <laughs> Fabulous. So I'm going to I'm gonna say thank you to Ed for guiding me through this world of keyboards and guitars. So I hope you feel more informed about the some of the technologies involved in prog rock. And join us next week for Days of the Future Past with the Moody Blues. This has been a sort of young person's guide to prog rock. And I have been your host, Ian Prize. We'll see you next week. Playing a little blues run. Beep, 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 beep.